We are continuing in the Gospel of Luke. Praise God. Last week we saw beautiful picture, Jesus compassionate, touching, healing the man with leprosy. More importantly, they used the word, and he used the word, be cleansed. It's a bit of an edge there. A powerful edge. Because to be cleansed was also the normal word that was used with regard to sin. And as this man's condition was made known, it was also the case among most of the Jews, we know this from John chapter 9, that the idea that someone could be cleansed or healed must mean that their sins were forgiven because many associated sinfulness with a disease. Jesus corrects them in in that regard later on. But nonetheless, they have a preconception that some sort of a sin healing must have occurred in order for a physical healing to have occurred. That might have sparked their interest. And right after this, you see crowds coming in from across the land, funneling their way in 630 feet below sea level to the Sea of Galilee, uh, to uh, Capernaum, where Jesus has stationed himself for this portion of his ministry. This is where we'll pick up the text in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. Read there with me. You can read silently while I read aloud. Let's do it that way. One day, or if you want to read aloud but quietly to yourself, that's, that's fine too. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees, this is the first time Pharisees are singled out in Luke's Gospel, so we'll talk about them in a moment. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. It's quite an effort, by the way, to make your way all the way from Judea and Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat. It's really like a bed that that the man had through the tiles and into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what had been li- he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed. That word is uh, basically the word ecstasy. It's ecstasis. They were in ecstasy over what they had just observed. 
and they gave praise to God. They were filled with awe. That word is phobos. We get phobia. Really, they were filled with fear. What just went down in front of our eyes? And they said, we have seen remarkable things today. And so they did. And so they had gathered. And who is it that had gathered here in this little corner of nowhere up in Galilee, in Capernaum, but the Pharisees and the Bible experts from across the land. This must have been quite intimidating to the local residents to suddenly see coming in from every direction and from every single village of Galilee. That's quite a representation. All of this into one small home. It would be perhaps you hosting, if you have a small apartment, all of us in that small home. The Pharisees are, you know, they, they've, I'm sure, been part of what we've seen throughout Luke's gospel so far, but it's the first time that Luke's lens has suddenly found them in the focus and has now begun to zoom in on them at least a little bit. And so, what's a Pharisee? You may feel as though you know. Sometimes they get stereotyped. But for the most part, the word Pharisee means somebody who is really trying to live out holiness. They are the separated ones. But holy means to be separated. Not to go with the flow. Not to be crushed by culture. But to stand out for the sake of God. And by every account, their real intention was they wanted to be countercultural to help bring about the glory of God. And their hope and their prayer was that by living radically and promoting radical holiness to the Torah, to the law, that perhaps God's blessing would again come on Israel and they would receive his intervention, his strong hand, and cast these stinking Gentile dogs, unclean as they were, out of their oppression and out of their country. And that was their hope. And what were they focused on? The coming of the kingdom of God. And if they could help bring it about by righteousness, amen. And now they hear of preaching and power about the kingdom of God. And these isolated stories of, of healing and miracles that are going on, all in the context of some preacher man who is claiming to be ushering in the kingdom of God. This would have caught their attention. Some, in the sense that this is what they were exactly wanting to do themselves. And could he be on the right track? Others, thinking, well, he's not part of us. How can he be on the right track? Even though he's saying the right words, like kingdom of God and God be glorified. Nonetheless, if he's not with us, then how can it really be the case? And so, in they gathered... And as they gathered, it's interesting that they had the front row seats because they had an agenda. They were radical. They were disciplined. And so they were able to get the front row. No, no offense to, you know. But just because you're in the front row, Gregory, doesn't mean <laughs> that you got it all going on with Jesus. Because... <laughs> He does, he does. <laughs> because as 
Jesus was preaching to them, it seems as though they had a, an eye out to try and catch him at the first misstep. And there they were, leaning on every word of Jesus, not because they were so keenly interested, but because they wanted to find some sort of fault. And that's a, um, a pretty good test of our hearts, even as we gather together to hear the word of God. You know, are, are you here to really try to gain something? Or is there a bit of you right now that's got a bit of that in you? Trying to find some faults. Looking for how we may stumble. How we don't align ourselves. How I might, in, in, in particular even, with all of that. I mean, here's, here's praying that you can look past all of that because we will all stumble over and over again, both in our representation of Christ communally and even as I try to do so personally as I bring it before us through the word of God. And again, if you sit here with a, with a fault-finding mentality, you're going to come away as unchanged as every one of the Pharisees did all throughout the scriptures. And yes, you may feel superior for a moment, but in the long arch of it all, what do you have to show besides stagnation and a, a personally superior attitude in all of this? But here's, here's what uh, begins to ensue. Just as they are there with a critical bent to their attitude, something is shedding light on the moment because the roof has opened up above them. Mark says they dug through the roof. Luke says they removed tiles. I'm not sure exactly the mechanics of these roofs that uh, needed to be kind of opened up, but most roofs were useful in Palestine because it was an extension of the living space that you had. We, we, we find Peter praying on the roof, taking a nap on the roof when he's in Caesarea, but most houses would have had exterior stairs that would have made their way up to the roof. But here's, here's where they are above him, and suddenly everything opens up and down lowers a paralyzed man on some sort of a bed or stretcher that is brought. And you know what? They must have been so fired up because they didn't know exactly where they were over the top. But it says, and they landed him right in front of Jesus. They're like, yes, bingo, target, reached. And so right in front of Jesus and his four friends are you know, quite... Um, Quite loyal and great in this case, and we'll talk about them in a moment. But I want to talk about the Pharisees for a moment here. Now, the Pharisees weren't all nasty, by the way. Uh, some Pharisees, for example, in Luke 13, he'll mention them as coming to Jesus in verse 31 and saying, uh, Yo, Jesus, you know, we, you know the, the, the word on the street is that Herod's trying to kill you. So I think you better, you know, make yourself scarce from these parts. So, I mean, that was kind of a nice heads up. It's in Luke's gospel where we find Jesus eating with Pharisees on more than one occasion and often with them inviting him. So there was something in them that hoped that they could all align and bring about the kingdom of God. But nonetheless, here they are though, and boom, here comes the paralyzed man. Here's all the Pharisees packed in tight to see what's going to happen. And now Jesus has to make sense of all of this situation. And as always, he does so brilliantly because... He sees this whole scene laid out before him and takes the opportunity to say something provocative to get the Pharisees exposed. And what does he say? Something beautiful. 
your sins are forgiven. How would you like to have Jesus say that to you with the assurance that this man received it? How would you walk out of here knowing that, wow, that was like as clear as a bell. I was there, he had a choice, and he declared it. Woo, come on. Who's going to be critical of that? Well, the Pharisees are. And here's the way that their criticism is laid out. They are, again, they are the the philosophers, the deep thinkers, the, the experts in the law. And as such, it says that they begin to think to themselves and question among themselves. The word that's used there is actually a philosophical term. It's the term that would have been used of Greek philosophers too, where they begin to dialogue or have a dialectical process. It's, it's where you wrestle and vet and expose and, and really try to sort out an argument. It's, it's that word that's being used of them there. It's uh, dia, dialogizomai, which is dialogue for us, is, is how we end up with that. In the middle of that is logos or logic. And so they're, they're working through the logic of the situation as they see it unfold and working through the logic of how is this man saying that he can forgive sins. And right away in their logic, they're thinking, that doesn't fit well, because who can forgive sins but God alone? And so I'm going to take you through, sorry about this, a little bit of logic, because it plays such a huge role in this story, and all of their conclusions that they draw are based on logical or or reasoning. So, for example, just to... Just to help you out with logical statements. There's a certain flow to logical statements that go all the way back to Aristotle. This is all based on Aristotelian logic, but don't worry about that. Just follow the examples for a moment here. And to help you out, teens, I have a good logic statement that I'm going to present here that probably is one that you may have pondered in your heart, dialogizomide in your heart around your parents, or screamed it from the rooftop to your parents. They may have said to you, you can get a phone once you're in high school, maybe middle school, maybe at a certain age, maybe once you do a certain thing, but let's just use high school for here. Here's the quote, you can get a phone once you're in high school. You started high school four months ago. (laughs) Premise, premise, therefore there's a conclusion. What's the conclusion? Where's my phone? Right? And that, that is a solid, it's called a valid argument. Right? It's a valid argument. Is, is statement one true? It is true. It is rock solid. Is statement two likewise rock solid? It is. And so therefore, the conclusion that you draw from it is valid. And so, mom and dad, where's their phone? <laughs> Let's look at another one. Maybe from the perspective of the parents this time. So you may have heard your parents say on more than one occasion, and maybe you've even had this printed somewhere in your house, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Right? Joshua 24, rousing, everybody loves that. And you choose to live in your parents' home. (laughs) Premise one, you know you've heard it. You know it's been the conviction of your household. As for me and my household, we serve the Lord. Premise two, 
You decided to be in that mix. So, conclusion? You better be serving the Lord. Or, I don't know, have a pretty sweet place all set up for yourself. One or the other. So, anyway, I mean, likewise, that would be two statements that demand a conclusion to them. So, now that we've got that straight, let's look at what they were dialoguing in their mind. What they were dialoguing in their mind was a clear statement that is for sure true. What is that statement? God alone forgives sins. God alone can forgive sins. Nobody in that crowded room would argue with that. But then we have another statement that comes into place. Another premise that is added to the mix. Jesus claims to forgive sins. Well, if that's the case, then what is the only valid conclusion that can come from that? That Jesus claims to be God. Jesus is not afraid to lay that on out there. And Jesus is laying it out, I am God. Well, that of course is why they're dialoguing in their mind. They're trying to wrap their minds around it. We just thought maybe he was trying to help us with the whole kingdom of God thing. Wait a minute. He's now claiming that he is God. Now, on top of that, they also understood in their mindset, and for them this was a true statement, and thus ends up being a valid argument. What is their premise? In order for a man to be healed, he must first be forgiven. The sin issue must be dealt with in order for the physical healing to be dealt with. Again, this is not a New Testament conviction, but this is what that crowd would have had in their mind. Jesus knew what they were thinking in their mind. How do I know that? Because the Bible says, Jesus knew what they were thinking in their minds. <laughs> Which is pretty sweet, too, by the way. So anyway, this is what they're dialoguing in their mind. Well, if this guy's going to be forgiven, or healed even, then he's first going to be forgiven, what's going on here? And then Jesus heals the man. Yes. Uh-oh. Now they've got to process this in their dialogizomai, in their dialoguing, in their, in their logical wrestling that's going on. What's the only conclusion that you can draw from this? Jesus did indeed forgive his sins. And if Jesus did, did indeed forgive his sins, what does that mean? Jesus is God. So there's all the logical rumblings, and this is a room filled with all of these premise, premise, conclusions, premise, premise, conclusions. And, you know, you probably see the steam as the gears are churning inside their head trying to make sense of all of this. You guys okay with this? You hanging? Yeah. All right. And one other thing that is said in this moment, too, that causes them to dialogue. And it's Jesus saying, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he uses this phrase, the Son of Man. The Son of Man has divine... And, and uh, for them, they would have understood in their mind what the Son of Man was. Son of Man is... It's tempting to think that Jesus is using the phrase Son of Man just as a, a humble recognition of his earthly state. But it's just the opposite. 
For example, we know that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. So it might be tempting to think that when he says son of God, he's talking about his divine nature and son of man, that he's talking about his human nature. Now, here's the interesting thing based on the biblical data is usually just the opposite. Because son of God used throughout the Old Testament often simply means that one is godly. And for example, even Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says that you will be sons of God. Or in other words, you will be, you will have godly characteristics about you. But the phrase son of man had deep implications. And it comes from Daniel chapter 7. I'll, I'll read it to you. But here's what would have been the premise in the minds of this audience as they're sitting there as this phrase, son of man, is about to be dropped on them in their midst. Daniel says, in my vision at night, uh, and by the way, they would have known this. This is all kingdom of God material. Daniel 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. This is the heart. It may have even been some of the things that they were discussing. May have even prompted Jesus to use the phrase son of man because of the dialoguing that might have gone on. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. This is gold to Pharisees. This is a precious, special promise for which they were praying. Where is this great manifestation of God through the Son of Man that will bring about authority, glory, and power? Not any power, sovereign power, so that all nations will ultimately worship Yahweh, worship God. Where is this coming of the Son of Man? So in their mind, the Son of Man has divine power for a new kingdom. Right? That's part of their premise. And now, another data bit here, or another logic that they've got to wrestle with. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. So what is the, the conclusion that's got to be drawn from that? Jesus claims to have divine power to usher in a new kingdom. All right, so that's... Whoops. Let me get you past a couple of these because we're, we're, we're done with the logic. So uh, that, that's... Um, that's Everything that the Pharisees were trying to process in the midst of all of the commotion of, of the miracles that are about to go down in front of them. And there's one other thing that they had to process too, and that was Jesus' question. Which is easier to say? To say your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? Now, either way, there's a good argument to be made for this. Is it easier to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? Well, if you say it, you better show me a little something, something. 
You can't just say it because now your word is on the line and it can be examined and either reinforced or undermined. So if you're about to say, get up, take up your mat and walk, well then, that paralytic better be dancing a jig in five minutes or else everything that you've tried to establish is going to come crumbling to the ground. So that's not easy to say because you've got to have validation. You've got to have a, a proof of this. Now, or is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Well, can you check on that? Not really. I mean, how do you really know? It's not like, you know, that you, you have some sort of an indicator, you know, in, in some part of your body that suddenly changes that your sins have been forgiven. It's not like you can jump higher or your hair falls out because you're so holy and godly. You know, that sometimes that, that is an indicator some people say. <laughs> but there's nothing like that, that, that that can really kind of indicate it. So to say your sins are forgiven, well, it's not as hard in a sense to just let those words trip off your tongue because, in a sense, who's going to know? But if you have godly integrity to say your sins are forgiven are, is immensely more difficult to say because you can only say it if you're God. Wow. So either one of those two things is a pretty big deal to have. But I love the way that Jesus puts it on them. All right, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, take up your mat and walk? You know, as a side note, one of the things that I think is such a, uh, a sad issue in modern Christianity is that people are all too quick to say your sins are forgiven. But yet that's the extent of the power of the gospel. When in fact the gospel of Jesus Christ has power not only to unshackle us from the dead of our sin, but to also break the chains of the actual pattern of our sin. And as I look across this room, I see it over and over and over and over again. Uh, the other night when Debbie and, I, Debbie and I prayed through everybody in the room, and we were so astounded at, wow, look at what God has done to change the entire course of that person's life. It was, it was a faith-building, astounding time wow. to be able to see what a difference it was. And, but here's the sadness, is that although the gospel message is a, a double cure, you both have repentance and forgiveness of sins. You have a change of life where you're free from sin, and you have a release of debt from sin. Most of Christianity right now is some weak sauce Altar call, come up here, pray this prayer, and a pronouncement that sins are forgiven. Garbage. Find it in the gospel. And in the end, when they do the statistics on that, the recidivism rate of godliness versus going back into sin is off the charts. When I say off the charts, I'm like 99 and three quarters percent off the charts. And, and it's as a result of that being permeated through modern Christianity, this corruption, where we don't see the power of change before our eyes, like Jesus promises here, as well as the assurance of salvation for the forgiveness of sins, to delink those things is, of course, what every charlatan 
would head towards. Every false prophet would head towards. Because if you were to say the gospel has power to change your life and then there's no life change, well then, his ministry's on the line. But if you can just say your sins are forgiven, well, who's to know? And most people just go about it that way. And as a result, there's a scandal of the evangelical world. It's sadly documented over and over again. One book in particular that came out a few years back was Ron Sider's book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. And in there, he quoted a lot of survey data, one of which was that if you look at sexual activity among teens, whether they are born again or, or whether they are general population, uh, it's, um, it's pretty sad. Uh, as a matter of fact, in a longitudinal study conducted by Columbia and Yale universities, they took on 12,000 participants who put on a true love weights ring, which is a kind of a, a, a mainstream Christianity pledge that you would remain pure or, or a virgin until your, your wedding day. And, and they followed them from the day they put on the ring until the day that they said, I do. And here's what they found, is that of those that put on the ring and made a pledge to God, 88% of them had sex. What in the world? And not only that, but a higher percentage of them than the general population contracted sexually transmitted disease. And a higher percentage of them than the, than the uh, uh, general population had a, uh, a, a pregnancy out of wedlock. That's the power of the gospel? What is that? Another study, I've mentioned this once before, is they, they, they um, did another study where they asked people of all different stripes in terms of their philosophy and religious beliefs. Atheists, Catholics, all sorts of Christian denominations, Jews, you name it. And, and they asked if, and they basically asked this, if a black person were to move next to you, would you in any way try to stop it? Right? And um, the group that was the highest in that survey was number one, Southern Baptists, and number two, a generalized group that called themselves born-again Christians. You gotta be kidding me, right? And what is that? And atheists, Jews, and Catholics were, were at the high end, the highest of, of, of all of this. So where's the power of the gospel? If that's the result. When they did a study of just basic giving to God of the things that he had given to us in stewardship, they found among those that claim church membership, not just you know, run-of-the-mill Christians, but if you claim church membership, that the average giving was not even a tithe. And tithe is just kind of a launch point, supposedly for us in the New Testament. But the average giving was basically one quarter of a tithe, 2.6% of their, of their gross income. That's of those that claim to be Christians and are, are, are church members. Those that claim to be radically born again, the number's not much better, 4%. Where's... Where's the kind of rearranging of life for the sake of God? But under any measure, materialism, sexual activity, media consumption, movies watched, TV shows watched, in the end, every indicator at the end saw that there was no difference between general population and 
those that claim to be Christian. And, and again, what's easier to say? I guess today it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. And sadly, that's the way that much of Christianity has gone. If you're here and you come out of a tradition like that, let me encourage you, there's hope. There's like amazing hope. That not only does the gospel have the power to give you the assurance of that forgiveness, but also the power to no longer be enslaved to that mess that was there as well. But in order to get there, a couple things I want to look at in conclusion. Have a whatever-it-takes attitude to bring people to Jesus. Nothing else is going to make the great change in someone's life. Nothing else is going to make sure that kids grow up in an atmosphere without abuse. That marriages can go from being a cold war to real one-flesh intimacy. That singles can revel in purity rather than in debauchery. Nothing else is going to bring that about other than real encounter with Jesus Christ. I love these friends who love this man so much. They come to the door and as soon as they get there, they're like, oh man, I didn't know the Pharisee train arrived before we got here. No way in. And so... They, it says that they tried. I love this. In verse 18, some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him to Jesus. That's the same word that Jesus uses a couple chapters later in Luke 13. When he says, many will try to enter into the door and they'll be surprised in the end that they are shut out of the kingdom of God. What does he say instead? He says, make Every effort. And the word that he uses for there is, it's a all-out bloody struggle. Leave it all on the field. You're going to do it no matter what. Nothing will deter you. And these men exemplify that very idea. And as a result, we have one of the beautiful miracle stories of the Bible because of their faith. The paralyzed man, well, let's face it, he's, he's just a passenger on their faith train at this moment. But because of their faith, who is it that you know is uniquely in your life right now that you've got to make that extra effort for? To help them come to see Jesus, to know Jesus. It's worth it. It's more than worth it for all of this to happen. Is it somebody in your family? For sure. Sometimes I feel like a physical effort, like gutting up to the roof, opening up the the hole in the roof, would be a bit easier than the emotional challenge of, all right, I'm going to ask you one more time. All right, I'm going to try and say it a different way. I'm going to agonize in prayer and then try and set up a special lunch and then beseech you with all my beseeching abilities to, to be able to really search for and find the Lord. This was the faith that Jesus saw in these men. And honestly, if we're not living out this in some way or another, where's our faith? What are we doing? Are, are we just trying to be amused by Jesus? Or are we recognizing that, no, 
This is Jesus, and whatever I can do, I've got to make every effort to bring everybody to be able to see Jesus. Think through, even this week, what else can you do that you look more like this faith that pleases Jesus? What else can you do that falls into the whatever it takes category rather than the whatever category of understanding what Jesus has to offer and understanding how you can be used by him for such a glorious and important task. And finally, this is a picture of the man now carrying the bed that once carried him. And it's exactly what Jesus says at the end. Take up that thing. The thing that you could never have imagined picking up before in your life. The thing that was required to support you, to carry you. Now you're going to hop off of it with health in your bones and strength in your muscles. You're going to pick that thing up. You're going to be able to carry it all the way home. And what once mastered you, you will now master. Jesus does this with the man's sins, and then he does it with his physical condition too. And for us, we need to celebrate what it is that Jesus has done, because we can now master what once mastered us. This is a long story. It's one that God mentioned to Cain and Abel when Cain was jealous of Abel and thinking about doing him some harm. And he says to him, why is your case down fast? Down, why is your face downcast? It's a spoonerism. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to master you. But you must master it. And we have what it takes to do exactly that. Why? Because you have been brought to Jesus. You had somebody that loved you enough to intervene in your life and disrupt the pattern of your life and bring you to Jesus. You were born again, not of some imperishable seed, but of imperishable. The Holy Spirit brought about a radical transformation where you went from dead in sin to alive in Christ. You have been before Jesus and you have been changed. And with that, it's not for us to then just roll on over onto the couch again. But to make sure that once, once mastered us, we now master. Before I came to Jesus, I was mastered by lust, by pornography, by that, that whole ball of just lasciviousness, the Bible uses that word. And it's just the, kind of the filthy uncleanness of of an unhealthy interest that not only became an interest, but became an enslavement to me. It was something that I participated in every single day of my life, probably from middle school until 29 years old. But after I was brought before Jesus, that ended. Not like, oh, sorry. No, it ended. Praise God. I could curse with the best of them in the day. Sometimes so much so it was embarrassing. I'd be in front of board meetings. And these words would just drop out of my mouth because I thought it made me sound more effective and passionate. And they would also flow so readily. 
coarse, filthy language. But when I came before Jesus, I, I mean, in the last 20 years, maybe like a couple have, have slipped out, which immediately I was shocked by. And, and amen. Realize that, no, that's, that's not who I am. This is something that I can now master, not of myself, but because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus has told me that I can. And so likewise with you. What is it? What is it that when you came before Jesus, that he included that you are able to master that once mastered you? Has it tried to master you again? Have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten what he has done? Have you bought into the fact that bitterness and unforgiveness and gossip and pornography and lust and deceitfulness and lying so you don't end up in a sticky situation? Have you forgotten that you were able to master all of those things? Has some of them found their way in? Have you made excuses for any of those? Don't let that stand. This is a beautiful story of a complete reversal in the power of Jesus Christ. And you know, you know that deliverance that has been yours. Don't let this week go by without that being fully restored to you. And don't let this week go by without making a decision about who it is that you will bring before Jesus. That you will make that effort. That you will please Jesus with your faith. That he will look over to you as you're lowering those ropes, doing the crazy whatever it takes, knowing that you're in alignment with the will of God. And he looks at you to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And throughout our entire church, as we get back to reclaiming mastery that is ours in Jesus Christ, and reclaiming the purpose and significance that is ours in Jesus Christ, what a difference we become all together as the body of Christ. Amen. Amen.